Hello, and welcome to our third episode of Yesterday in Travel. My name is Brian Rogers, and I'm joined, as always, by Kalina Fraga. Hi, Kalina. Hi, Brian. Today, we're going to delve into the world of the Beatles around the mid-1960s and the events surrounding the trip to India that George Harrison and his wife, Patty Boyd, took in 1966. We'll look at the travel trends that led to Harrison's fateful trip and the subsequent travels of the entire Beatles gang to India following George's trip and examine the travel trends that emerged in the post-World War II, post-colonial world of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s and ushered in a novel form of travel as a way to explore and discover meaning in life. But first, let's look at what's happening in travel now. Okay, so the TSA throughput numbers, we'll start there. There was a spike around Labor Day, but we're now back down to 31% as a seven-day average compared to a year ago, which basically means there's been no change. Um, For Mexico and the U.S., there's a border closure which expires in a week on September 21st. The U.S. travel advisory has been downgraded from a level four do not travel to a level three to reconsider travel. Colombia is reopening borders to international flights also on the 21st of September, but with restrictions. Colombia has the sixth highest number of COVID cases in the world and is still on the United States' do not travel list. In addition, the U.S. State Department has also lowered China's travel advisory from do not travel to reconsider travel, but has also warned of arbitrary detention and exit bans for foreigners. Morocco is opening borders to flights from the U.S. as well as 66 other countries. Um, And I'll also add that if you're an American citizen living in certain states, you are permitted to travel to Costa Rica. So that's some good travel news as well. Okay, so let's jump back into the story behind this first trip that George Harrison and his wife, Patty Boyd, took to India in 1966. And I guess it all starts with the filming of the movie Help in 1965. And apparently George Harrison was on set filming this movie in a restaurant, uh, an Indian restaurant, and they had cast a bunch of extras as an Indian band that was playing sort of in the background of these restaurant scenes. And one of the members of the band was playing a sitar or sort of acting like they were playing the sitar. And George Harrison, being a guitar player and interested in other instruments that might look like a guitar, he saw the sitar and he said, hey, ooh, that looks interesting. So that sort of, I think, initially sparked his interest and his curiosity. And then subsequently, as the story has been told later on, he, um, the Beatles went on tour to in the United States later on. He ran into David Crosby of the band Crosby, Stills & Nash, who lent him a Ravi Shankar record. Um, and that sort of continued to satiate George Harrison's interest. Um, and a few months later, when they returned to London, apparently he bought a sitar. And a couple months after that, they recorded Norwegian Wood. And on it, George Harrison is playing the sitar. So that sort of marked the the beginning of his interest in Indian music specifically and sort of in Indian culture more more broadly. Well, you said you said before that you listened to the Norwegian Wood and you thought it was a sloppy recording or it sounded like very like uh, not precise. His sitar playing novice, novice, novice. novice. That's a good yeah. One. yeah. 
I mean, I think he plays a, a melody line. He plays it competently, but mm-hmm. he's certainly, you know, the, the melody of Norwegian wood that includes the sitar is certainly not, um, nothing mind blowing. And mm-hmm. I guess in hindsight, it, it makes sense that, um, you know, he had only been playing for a few months. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. And Ravi Shankar listening to this record thinks it's not very good either. And he knows like he's obviously, like you said, a grandmaster of playing the sitar. He thinks this is not a very good uh, rendition. Of the yes. Instrument. Yes. But that, you know, that did not deter George. He continued to be interested in the sitar. He continued to learn to play, but he did actually want to learn from the master. So a year later, uh, his, his wife was sort of looking around at like places to go and things to do. And she was kind of interested in spirituality and yoga. And so in 1966, uh, George Harrison and his wife decide, let's go to India. George can learn to play sitar from the grandmaster Ravi Shankar and Patty Boyd can go do yoga and, and uh, get spiritually enlightened. So that's what they do. In 1966, they spend around a month there and they start getting into yoga. George Harrison meets Ravi Shankar and is taking lessons from him. And subsequently, he starts incorporating Indian music into a lot of the recordings in the years following, a lot of Beatles recordings and a lot of his own his own recordings. So it sort of sparks this interest and passion that extends, you know, for the rest of his life. And it sparks a friendship with Ravi Shankar. He and George Harrison really hit it off. And I think Ravi Shankar recognized that he was a serious musician and not just a kind of, I think initially, maybe he didn't know what to think of a Western pop artist taking interest in Indian music, but they they developed a pretty close friendship over the years. Right. And George was really young too. So um, he was in his 20s, mid 20s, I think. Um, and he's really profoundly impacted as well. I think if you know like his career and his life, you can see how much this experience in India and his interest in Eastern culture like influenced his his like look and his music and everything moving forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now let's jump back in time a little bit and look at what's going on during this period, because Harrison's interest in the sitar and in India didn't just come out of nowhere. There was this sort of phenomenon of travel as seeking meaning that had been brewing for a while. And now there were other prominent Western figures who had begun exploring religion and spirituality and ideas coming out of India and South Asia. So let's get into that a little bit. Yeah. So in the years after World War II, kind of like uh, like boon years, there was this, you know, during the war and during the Great Depression in the United States, there was this scarcity and people just scrimp and save. And then suddenly after the war, there's all this new stuff and you can afford all this new stuff. New cars, canned goods, television, etc. So this is really great for a lot of people. But as it continues, there's a backlash against it. People are starting to question the value of consumerism and material objects and the idea of success. At the same time, the whole world is changing after World War II. Um, it's a post-colonial world. There are new societies emerging, especially in the East, um, places that were former colonies of, of Western powers. So there's like two trends going on at the same time. In the West, people are are kind of fed up with their own society, um, with consumerism and material objects. And the East is sort of like open. It's becoming open for the first time for a lot of people. Yeah, and you sort of see that broadly culturally but also specifically in the the beat generation and sort of the beat 
movement that um, literary movement that comes out of the 50s. There's this sort of rejection of the standard values of Western society, a rejection or, or sort of an exploration of different ideas, different religions, different ideas about spirituality and sort of this idea of spiritual quest. And also experimentation with drugs, sexual liberation, all the sorts of things that we associate with kind of hippie culture and beat culture really start to enter the mainstream around the late 50s and 60s. And you get On the Road by Jack Kerouac in 1957. Uh, and you get the works of Allen Ginsberg. And he actually goes to India and returns, I guess he goes in 1962 and then uh, returns with a lots of new ideas about Eastern religion and um, sort of brings them into the discussion around the counterculture and the anti-war movements. Right. And Allen Ginsberg coins the term, which I think is really interesting, flower power as a way. Um, if you look at like pictures of like protests in the 60s, you see a lot of, you know, hippies holding flowers or putting flowers in guns. And he sort of brought these ideas about like showing showing how violent war is by contrasting it with like this like peace and like flower and love and everything. Which he found, which he found a lot of these ideas from his travels in the East. Yeah. So these and so these ideas are all brewing, um, and it's sort of in this context that George Harrison becomes interested in Indian music and kind of develops this interest. And after his initial trip in 1966, he he eventually convinces all the Beatles to go to India together and to seek out enlightenment through a meditation retreat that they all decide to go on together in 1968. Mm -hmm. um, 1968 also happens to be an incredibly tumultuous year. So there's, there's all sorts of things happening in the United States with civil rights. Martin Luther King is killed in April. Um, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated in June. There are protests. There's elections going on and the Vietnam War and, and the protests around the war are reaching their peak. But at the same time, as you were saying, with this opening in all of these post-colonial nations, especially in nations that had been part of the British Empire, there is sort of an opening. And Life magazine actually ran, ran a, an article about 1968 being the year of the guru. So this idea of Eastern religions and philosophies and these terms like guru and Swami and other sorts of Indian religious terms start to enter into the popular discourse um, and, and sort of ideas around meditation and those sorts of things. So that's sort of the context in which they all The, the Fab Four decide they're going to go on a little trip together. Yeah. And the girl thing is interesting, too. You talked about how violent that year was. And I think a lot of people felt like their society had sort of lost direction. They started looking elsewhere for a teacher or a guide or a leader. And I think that's one reason why Life magazine comes up with the year of the guru. Because it seems like people are just searching for instruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Beatles are also kind of searching as well. Mm -hmm. There's this great quote from... Paul McCartney. I mean, they've they're massively successful and uh, they've gotten to a point in their career where they're sort of similarly to this, you know, this idea of decadence in Western culture where people have everything they need, but are, are missing something spiritual. Um, Paul McCartney said, I won't do it in my best Paul McCartney accent. <laughs> Your Liverpool, I don't Liverpool have accent. <laughs> okay. That's probably for the best. He says, We'd been the Beatles, which was marvelous. We weren't getting too spaced out or big headed, but I think generally there was a feeling of, yeah, well, it's great to be famous, 
it's great to be rich, but what's it all for? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of leads them to go on this transcendental meditation trip to India. They stay at this very famous Maharishi Mahesh uh, compound, this ashram where they are are there to learn to meditate and they're going to see the guru from the year of the guru. Yeah. They're going to see the same guy. Yeah. Right. He's sort of like a celebrity guru at this point. And since they're, mm-hmm. you know, since they're like at the pinnacle of celebrity, who else, who else to go see than, than this guy. Um, mm-hmm. So the trip itself doesn't go very well. Um, no. It's something of a disaster. It seems they show up, uh, they're there with their spouses. You know, all the Beatles are there um, with their spouses. Ringo and his wife leave after two weeks because they're, they don't like the food and Ringo's wife is, well, it was written that she like didn't like bugs. I don't know if that's just made up, but. No, yeah, I've read that too. They didn't like, they felt like they were being eaten alive by bugs. They couldn't eat any of the food and they were ready to go. Did not last long. And then Paul also decided after a few weeks that he was going to take off. He said he was quoted afterwards as saying, I was although I was meditating about eight hours a day, I was writing the most miserable songs on Earth. So he clearly was not finding whatever he was doing. He was not finding it super, super helpful. Um, And maybe that I don't know. I think that might have been part of the issue is. George's idea was they were going to all get away from their careers for a bit and get away from focusing on that. And Paul, Paul was thinking about the trip in terms of like songwriting and like yeah, whether it was right. improving his songwriting. So it was very on brand for Paul mm-hmm. McCartney. I think he was always like, what can we do next to like, what's our next thing as the Beatles? And, he and, like, he and George did have that tension during the trip where George was like, we're here to like meditate and like learn. And exactly. Like yeah, said, yeah. Paul thought it was a good opportunity to write more songs. He was like the workaholic of the gang, I guess. Um, So then George and John stayed on. They stayed for much longer. John Lennon, by all accounts, was very into it as well. Um, But eventually, even for them, the trip kind of turned sour because the this guy, Maharishi Mahesh, got involved in some sort of sex scandals involving, you know, abusing the, the power that he had um, among the people that sort of worked in the ashram that he oversaw. And so that, that just kind of led to things completely falling apart. So the trip itself was a bit strange and a bit of a, of a failure. Um, mm-hmm. Although they did write songs that would eventually be put on records, mm-hmm. like, like Dear Prudence, they wrote, there um about someone who was taking meditation too seriously they thought so songs like that to come out of the whole experience yeah and i think like i mean for our purposes looking at the impact that the trip had you know the beatles having mm-hmm. gone to india and having done this trip regardless of sort of what what happened and, and what the details were just ended up creating a, a huge amount of exposure for the idea of India, the idea of traveling to India, Indian culture, and the idea that there's value to seeking out new ideas in new places. And um, there was in the Western world, in England, the United States, because of all this exposure, there was a huge increase in just the visibility of Indian clothing and ideas around yoga and meditation. And of course, the sitar started to enter into 
not only Beatles songs, but other, you know, rock and roll songs, the Western pop music started to incorporate the sound of the sitar and, and other sounds. So it really, you know, in that way had a huge. Yeah, right. So the Beatles being the biggest band in the world, everything you said, they brought all this attention. Parallel to the Beatles going to India, there was already this movement among Western travelers, um, this draw among Western travelers East. And many young people were embarking on this thing, which we call today the hippie trail. So the hippie trail was a path that was from Europe to Asia, and it would stop in countries which for many Westerners today seem impossible to visit. Um, in some cases, they really are. It's like Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and India. And these were people that, like we mentioned earlier in the show, who just felt like they didn't fit in with Western society, with Western values and norms, and they were seeking something else. And they were curious about Eastern culture. So they went on this um, adventure, on this trail to try to find meaning in life, to try to find something that they were lacking at home. So five of the main stops um, were in Istanbul and Turkey, Peshawar, Afghanistan, uh, Bamiyan, also Afghanistan, Goa in India and Kathmandu in Nepal. Yeah, along the whole trail, there kind of appeared all these hostels and all sorts of businesses and services that were catering to the Westerners that were traveling along the right. trail. Well, that's the interesting thing about the Hippie Trail, too, is that these Westerners would go on these trips and they would find these places, these cafes, and then bring that information back home to other travelers. So what we're seeing with the Hippie Trail is kind of the first time people are crowdsourcing travel information. Um, today, you'll check whatever TripAdvisor or Yelp to know what to do somewhere if you don't know anyone there. But back then, it was a little more complicated. And the people on the Hippie Trail would come together and, and share these tips about where to go, which cafes to go and like where you could get drugs and, and all these things. Yeah. And interestingly, I mean, I think one of the things that, that we found researching this is that a lot of the early guidebook culture of traveling comes out of this time because the couple that starts the Lonely Planet guides are actually part of this sort of hip, the hippie trail phenomenon. And they actually go on a trip in the early 70s from London to Singapore and write about the entire experience. And that ends up being what is sort of the first edition of their Lonely Planet travel guides. I guess it was called Across Asia on the Cheap. And then mm -hmm. they... Which is important too, because people people traveling had like no money. So they just needed to know mm -hmm. how to like do this as inexpensively as possible. Yeah, that's actually another interesting aspect of this is that like, yeah, as we've discussed, airline travel is, is expensive at this time. Mm -hmm. And international travel in general is more of an upper class activity. But because this is travel by land, by bus, it's relatively cheap. And also because the people going on these trips are younger people who just don't have a lot of money and are more in it for the experience, it suddenly changes the paradigm a little bit where travel is something you can do on the cheap. And that's something that is like exciting to people to try to do. Mm -hmm. It's almost like adds to the to the adventure and the challenge and the potential for enlightenment, maybe. Yeah. There is another guide that people people traveling the trail use called the BIT guide, which was crowdsourced tips from other travelers. So people would bring this with them as they went on the hippie trail. Yeah, I mean, that just like is this entirely new, new phenomenon that I think is like super interesting because these days, yeah, mm -hmm. we there's so much crowdsourced material online. But back then it was this it was much more hands on, arduous process of sort of collecting that. Yeah, it's no, no Internet or Google Maps yeah, or anything. Yeah. To know people who knew people. 
Um, one other thing that we we kind of wanted to touch on, I mean, this, you know, this phenomenon of people traveling on the hippie trail and all these Westerners heading east to explore and learn also had an effect on the local people in all these different places. And we sort of touched on it in that like businesses did pop up that were catering to their needs in terms of like hostels and places to stay and, mm -hmm. and places to eat. And so there were these places where there became it's kind of like a, a low level cultural exchange. Um, but there were also ways in which the influx of these Western tourists who didn't have much money and were often in search of drugs. Like, it was like culture shock, right? I think there was a lot of there were a lot of local people along these routes, um, you know, Iranian, Pakistani, mm -hmm. Afghani people who were a little bit how to put it. They were, I think, a little bit unsure of of these new people coming in. And there was there was a sense that maybe they should keep their distance and that all of this influx of different ideas and culture was not necessarily a good thing, especially from these like dirty bearded hippies running around doing drugs. Right. Yeah. It's like in Nepal, the first tourists, the first like official tourists were in the 1950s and they were like very like well to do middle aged Americans. Mm hmm. And I believe the king of Nepal met them personally because there's only like five of them off a cruise ship. Mm -hmm. And then you have the hippie trail and it's these young, kind of wild, these kids who are breaking, I mean, they're they're breaking norms in their own country and then they're coming into these other countries. And there was definitely a reaction of like, oh, this is not the tourists that we thought we were going to get. Mm -hmm. One travel writer, uh, his name is Bruce Chatwin, even went as far to say that extremism that emerged in Afghanistan was the result of government alarm about the hippies. Um, he wrote that the hippie trail pushed, quote, educated Afghans into the arms of the Marxist. And not everyone agrees with this. This is something that he wrote and, and felt strongly about, but it's sort of his opinion in this case. But it is an interesting quote about just how these people came in who were radically different often from the locals that they encountered. Yeah. And, and I think I mean, it is true that soon after this, there was an armed conflict between Russia and Afghanistan after this. And that's, you know, what when things sort of things along the hippie trail got serious and eventually things kind of died down and, and fewer and fewer people started traveling. I guess we can segue into that. It really was this phenomenon that happened during the 60s and 70s. But then at a certain point, the hippie trail kind of ceased to be because the mm -hmm. Iranian revolution happened in 1979 and Iran suddenly became a country that certainly Westerners were not welcome in. There were also, you know, changing attitudes in, in the United States and in much of the West during the late 70s. And things were kind of taking a turn from the hippie era into a little bit more of a conservative era where Reagan gets elected. And so there's suddenly there's kind of an abrupt mm -hmm. end to this period when all these people are, are traveling West. Um, but certainly yeah, it becomes I, too dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's a reminder that all of the global travel that has been done, you know, in the in in the decades since World War Two is in part due to the stability that came, you know, the lack of war, uh, this period of, of peace and stability from World War Two. And that has sort of allowed there to be even be an international travel industry there to be this opportunity for Westerners who have excess income to use it on enlighten themselves by traveling around the world. 
Mm-hmm. And then as soon as there is some sort of safety concerns um, and conflicts arising, that that privilege that people take for granted sometimes immediately disappears. Um, and this is sort of the case in, in this instance where lots and lots of people were experiencing India and Afghanistan, these places in, you know, in South Asia. And then suddenly um, it all kind of came to an end. Right. Yeah. Pretty abruptly. I think it's what's interesting about the the hippie trails and also, you know, this trip that George Harrison takes is this idea that like traveling as a way of finding meaning in your own life, having a personal growth is something that's novel at this time. And so it's really the first time we start to see people traveling en masse in this type of way where people are seeking out something um, that will enrich their their own lives. I mean, his Patty Boyd, his wife literally like goes on a yoga retreat and like yoga retreats are now like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it reminds me too of this one quote I came across, which I'm going to paraphrase like very badly because I don't remember it that well. But in this article about the hippie trails, they're talking about how this romanticizing of the East still exists. And if you read even like recent Lonely Planets about Nepal, they'll talk about how beautiful the Himalayas are and how you'll go and like find yourself in this like beautiful country. And this guy from Nepal says, okay, like maybe, but we here in Nepal, like we're looking to the West as somewhere that we want to go and like explore and find ourselves. And he says, maybe we'll meet somewhere in the middle, both of us like crossing and trying to like find some meaning in another culture, which I found was very interesting given how this, this, the hippie trails was so focused on the West going Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. East. Yeah. Well, I think inevitably, I mean, like what happened was all these people, you know, all these young people were traveling East, but at the same time, inevitably what was happening was a mixing of cultures, which on a good day is something that benefits everyone. You know, certainly it's maybe um, I think you can view it from the vantage point of, you know, imposing a little bit of like imposing culture on these places, you know, this influx of people and like the local people have very little say in it. But at the same time, I think like in the purest sense, you were getting two cultures mixing um, broadly for the first time. And and out of that comes a lot of understanding on both sides and a lot of learning on both sides, you know, cultures and languages and customs and just like a human understanding that is valuable in and of itself, it, you know, makes the world smaller and it makes people, you know, perhaps understand each other's motivations better and, you know, live, you know, uh, maybe a bit more harmoniously. That's like the kumbaya version of it. Um, (laughs) Well, you'll need to look at like the success of Lonely Planet to see the value in this sharing of travel and, you know, the desire to go new places. Absolutely. Do you want to talk about this, uh, this ad we found about the hippie trails coming back? (laughs) (laughs) So one interesting piece of travel news that we came across while researching this episode is there's a company called Overland Travel that is trying to revive the hippie trail in a way. Uh, They're launching a bus tour from Delhi to London. It's a bus for 20 people that will cross 18 countries in 70 days, and it only costs $20,000. Wow. But yeah, you don't have to do the entire trip, the whole, I guess you can purchase only a part of the trip if you don't feel like spending that much money or or 70 days on a bus with 19 strangers. <laughs> yeah, wow. In a way, yeah. yeah, very similar like to the way the hippies did it, but at the same time um a <laughs> like little not bit, at all similar. Yeah. 
at the same time. Yeah. But kind of fascinating how they're, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to do something in this time when no one's traveling and they're, they're putting together a, an itinerary and, you know, Mm -hmm. um, more power to them. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, for sure we've seen, or at least one travel trend that people are predicting is that there's going to be more bus travel and more like car travel moving forward, Mm -hmm. maybe less planes. Although I keep reading that planes are actually pretty safe too. Yeah. It's, it seems logical that like if you're stuck in a cylinder and you're in a plane 40, 30,000 feet above the earth, or you're stuck in a cylinder with 50 other people and you're in a bus with the similar sorts of like air conditioning, there shouldn't be that. Neither one is going to be that much more safe or Mm. less safe than the other. So yeah. Um, But great. Keep it going. Keep the hippie trail going. That's what I say. Right. (laughs) Keep it going. All right. I think that does it. That's our show. Thank you for listening and make sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Yesterday in Trav. We'll be posting about future episodes as well as updates on what's going on with travel today. And watch your feed for our next episode, which will be all about President Obama's policy changes in Cuba in 2014, what led to the changes and their aftermath. Yes, very exciting. (laughs) Email us with feedback or episode ideas at yesterdayintravel at gmail.com. And please, if you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend, review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to the feed. Thanks, and we'll be back with more soon. Yesterday in Travel is sponsored by Via Hero, a platform that connects you to local travel experts who live where you're going. Their job is to provide expert advice and help arrange activities and logistics like lodging, guided tours, transportation, and restaurant reservations. They also share insider tips on hidden gems and activities that you might never find searching the web. When you hire a local, your money goes directly to them, and they help you plan a trip that is more fun, less expensive, and also directs your tourism dollars more evenly to the communities you visit, which helps to make your trip more sustainable. Plus, locals are the best way to help you navigate safely to avoid crowds and comply with rules so that you can have peace of mind and focus on enjoying your trip. Use the code YESTERDAY at checkout to get 10% off your next customized itinerary and guidebook. Created just for you by one of Via Hero's amazing locals in over 20 destinations across the world. Go to www.viahero.com to find more. That's www.viahero.com to start planning your next trip with the help of a local. And remember to use the code YESTERDAY at checkout, which gets you 10% off and lets them know we sent you.